Well, turn with me, if you would, to Romans uh, chapter 9. And just hearing those words, turn to Romans chapter 9, may cause uh, an unknown sense of dread to fall over you. And uh, if so, that's okay. This is a very difficult, a very controversial chapter. And yet, as we do with all the Bible, we want to let uh, the text speak for itself uh, rather than uh, impose our own ideas or thoughts onto the Word of God. We want to humble ourselves under the Scriptures as the very Word of God, the infallible, authoritative, and inerrant Word of God. There's a very familiar story uh, that I've heard over the years as it relates to this chapter. Uh, Romans 9 is where people turn when they're angry. Uh, and what I mean by that is someone has just told them about the doctrine of election. They've explained to them the doctrine of election. And then they turn to Romans 9 to either investigate or to attempt to disprove this doctrine. It's something they'd never heard before, or maybe it's not at all what they grew up hearing, what they were taught when they were a child, and they want to get to the bottom of it. Um, I heard a pastor this week say that when he first uh, became a believer, he was a brand new Christian, and someone was telling him about this doctrine of election and quoting parts of Romans chapter 9. He said as a new believer, he grabbed his Bible and he ripped that page out of his Bible. Not metaphorically, he literally tore that page out of his Bible. Now he would go back and he would tape it in later. He would come to love the doctrine, but not initially. Another pastor friend of mine said he was preaching uh, through Romans 9, and when he was done, this lady came up to him just steaming angry. And she said, I wish you would have told me. And he said, well, I wish I would have told you what? And she said, I wish you would have, you would have told me you were in Romans chapter 9. I would have never been here today. And this is not, again, the, the, these stories go on and on. I actually had several other uh, in my notes, but for the sake of time, I, I removed them. Uh, the doctrine of election, in case you, you weren't here a couple of weeks ago, or in case you've never heard of it, and that's okay, um, it's the Bible's teaching that before God created the world, before he made anything, he chose out of the human race those he would bring to saving faith, justify, and adopt into his own family. Anyone who is saved is saved because God chose them before they were born. And we want to say, I want to say up front at the very beginning, it's, this is not an easy uh, doctrine. Um, we want to be careful to admit we don't have it all figured out. Uh, there certainly is mystery to it, uh, but we don't avoid it or ignore it because it's controversial. Pastor Carl Santos says, Every pastor knows that when he preaches on the doctrine of election, he's in for a rough morning and faces a week at least of emails, calls, and conversations. And I want to say to you, that's okay. I would love to have those conversations. I really would. Any of our elders would love to have these conversations. In fact, I have one on the schedule this week. And so if you hear something this morning that you just don't get or you don't understand or it makes you mad, that's okay. We would love uh, to hear from you and, and talk about it. Um, if you're new, this is not a subject we just decided to, to take on today, although certainly there'd be nothing necessarily wrong with that, but uh, we've been preaching through Romans for 27 weeks, and this is where we find ourselves in Romans chapter 9, which continues the teaching on election or predestination, which is just a more broadly, a more broad understanding of it that appeared in Romans throughout Romans, um, especially in Romans chapter 8. Uh, this morning, I want to show you three things from the text as it relates to election why it's so surprising, why it's undeniable, 
and why it's incredibly comforting. So why it's surprising, undeniable, and incredibly comforting. Let's look first at why it's so surprising. Uh, We'll cover verses one through 13. Let me start by reading verses one through nine. Here reads the word of the Lord. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Have you ever noticed uh, how many idioms we use that have something to do with animals, you know, metaphors or analogies that use animals. I was just sitting in my office in in prep and I came up with about 25 off the top of my head, things that we say, sort of comparisons to animals. Um, You know, we may say, well, my, my wife sent me on a wild goose chase for an ingredient that no store has ever had. And we, we know what that means. You know, we understand that. Um, We might say, well, you know, don't ever look a horse, a gift horse in the mouth. You know, we, that requires a little more explanation. Uh, sometimes we say, um, you know, I'd like to be a fly on the wall when that conversation took place. And of course we know what that means. That means I'd like to be there to hear what's happening, but not be seen. Um, and there are many that, you know, again, there are 20 plus that I came up with and most of them, well, many of them are fairly easy to understand or relate to. Some don't make any sense at all. I think, um, I had a friend who used to love to say if he thought something was great, liked a particular line of clothing or, or, or well-prepared steak, he would say, that's the bee's knees right there. And I never knew, and I knew what he was getting at. He was saying he really liked it, but I never really understood what that had to do. I don't, bees don't have knees as far as I know, although I'm open to be corrected on that, but I didn't know, know what that had to do with anything. Um, we hear other ones that we don't really understand, but one animal analogy that everybody knows is we can't ignore the elephant in the room. And of course, that means there's a really significant major issue that we have to address. We can't pretend as though it doesn't exist, just like we wouldn't pretend if there were a real elephant in the room that it doesn't exist. That's where our focus would be. And so that means we have to talk about this. Well, Paul writes Romans chapter nine to address the elephant in the room. And here's what I mean by that. For eight chapters, Paul's been talking about the beauty and the power and the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, he says in the very first chapter of Romans, it is the power of God unto salvation, suggesting that it's what draws people, it's what uh, grabs people at the level of their heart, it brings people to saving faith. God uses the gospel to bring about radical transformation in people's lives. And then in Romans 1, though, he also says, to the Jew first. In other words, by all appearances, uh, that the Jews were God's priority, first priority in terms of the target of the gospel. But here's the elephant in the room. The overwhelming majority of the Jewish people who had heard the gospel preached to them rejected it. It did not transform them. It did not reconcile them to God. It did not come with great power, at least ostensibly. To the contrary, when they heard it, the Jews were outraged. Just take a look at Paul's encounters through the book of Acts and the number of times he's preaching the gospel to his fellow kinsmen, the Jews, and they are furious, they're angry, they try to persecute him. 
He even goes into synagogue, which is where the Jews worshiped, and they invariably kick him out when he starts speaking up. So the major unavoidable question is, Paul, if you say the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first, then why are the Jews not being saved by it? And Paul answers very emotional. You, 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 emotionally, you may know Paul. He was a very well-educated man. Man, he trained uh, under the feet of uh, the most astute and erudite uh, scholars. He was himself a true expert in the law. But it doesn't mean that he's sort of an emotionless egghead. He's, he feels deeply. And here his emotions are on full display when he expresses his profound concern for his own people, the Israelites. He's so grieved that they're not receiving Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah that he has the audacity to say, I have such sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart that I wish that I were accursed, anathema, cut off from Christ, if it means that my own people would receive him. Now, of course, Paul knows that that's not the way it works, but he's saying if that could be true, I would be willing, he says, I would go to hell for my people. That's what he's saying, in essence. Now, it's not the main point of this passage by any stretch, but I do think it's worth pointing out, at least pausing for a moment to consider, do we care about the lost people in our own families, in our own neighborhoods, with anywhere near the sense of grief or burden that Paul has? And I'll be very candid with you, I don't. And I seek the Lord's forgiveness on this on a regular basis. There are people in my neighborhood, people in my own family, uh, that I don't feel this way about. I know that I should. And I ask God for the compassion to respond that way. But Paul cares so much about the salvation of his own people that he agonizes over them. It keeps him up at night. He prays for them. He would die for them if it meant their salvation. But the fact that the Jews are not coming to saving faith as much as this deeply troubles Paul it doesn't mean that God's plan has failed. The fact that the Jewish people rejected Jesus is pretty incredible given all they'd experienced and, and enjoyed. They were adopted as sons, verse 4a, that means they're the ones that God calls Israel his son. To them belongs the glory, 4b, that just means they had seen the manifestation of God's presence on the mountain with all its glory. Uh, they... Theirs was the covenant foresee, a reminder of the divinely established bond that uh, God created, that God brought about between himself and the people of Israel. The law was given to them, he goes on to say. They worshiped God in his holy temple. The patriarchs were Jewish. Jesus Christ, the Messiah, was Jewish as well. This means there's absolutely no room, zero room, for any anti-Semitism, or any hatred of the Jewish people. It was through Israel that God would make known the glory of his salvation. In fact, Christ himself was a Jew. Our own savior was a Jew. And yet, despite this history and the honor bestowed upon them, they refused to recognize again the promised Messiah, Jesus, the King. On a human level, the Jewish people had every reason to believe in the Christ, but they didn't. But that's no surprise to God. God's not taken aback by that. God's not up in heaven wringing his hands over this. Paul's answering the question, why do some believe and others don't? Here's why election is so surprising, our first point. The ones we expect to be saved 
who ought to receive Christ, at least from a human perspective, are seldom the ones that God saves. Why is election so surprising? Well, first of all, it's surprising that God would save anybody because we're all rebels against God. We've fallen short of his glory. We're all deserving of his wrath and hell. And yet God, by his mercy, he saves some. So it's surprising, certainly on, on that sense. Um, but it's just as surprising the people that God does choose. One of the reasons that's so surprising is the people that God chooses and doesn't choose. If anyone should have received Christ, it would have been the Jewish people. They enjoyed, as we've just seen in the first five verses of Romans 9, all the privileges, and some did believe in Jesus, for sure. In fact, this, this, this letter is written to a church at Rome, some of which were Jewish believers, those who come to Christ who were Jewish. But the overwhelming majority rejected Christ and spurned his gospel. And I think it does beg a question, who are the ones that we expect to be saved? I mean, often isn't it the ones who stay out of trouble, the ones who are the most respectful and polite, the ones who work the hardest, the ones who are the well-behaved, the ones who come from a good family, the ones who have access to the right teaching. Those are the ones that we expect. Well, of course, they would be the ones who would come to saving faith. But God is a God of surprises, neither human privilege, family lineage, or statistical likelihood, so to speak, factor into God's salvation. Now, what does this mean for us practically? Well, I think two things, at least right away. First, we should never write anyone off because they look like they're never going to trust in Jesus. Because we don't know. We have no idea whom God has cho chosen. We don't know what God is doing in their lives or what he plans to do. I've done this before. I'm ashamed to say I've had people in my mind that I've thought because of the way they're living or because, you know, because their lifestyle or whatever, that there's just, they're never going to come to saving faith. And yet God showing himself to be infinitely wise and all powerful and glorious has brought some of those folks to saving faith. Because those whom God has chosen, he will bring to faith in his timing, even if everything that we see seems to suggest the opposite. So one, I think we, we don't write anyone off. But a second application is we ought not to assume that because someone has all the privileges, they come from a good family, they get a good solid education, uh, they're, they're well-behaved, they, you know, they, they serve in certain ministries that they belong to the Lord. Have you ever wondered why some people believe and others don't? Why, why two people from the same family, two siblings from the same family, one receives Christ and the other doesn't? Why two people who went to the same evangelistic event, maybe an outreach, maybe a revival, whatever it is, one walked the aisle and the other didn't? Of course, that doesn't, walking the aisle doesn't mean anybody's saved, but someone receives Christ and the other one doesn't? Two people who go together to the same event? Paul gives an answer to that question. It's because of God's election. It's interesting that Paul never talks about election as a problem that needs to be solved, but instead as the solution to the problem. What's the problem? Why some people believe and others don't? The answer is election. Now, I know that, of course, this is going to spark all kinds of questions. Again, I'm, I want to hear those, and I want to sit down and talk about those. Some of the questions and some of the objections I'll actually cover next week when we get to the second half of Romans 9. Um, but let's continue in the text, verses 6 through 13. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, Paul says. 
For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger As it is written, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. Why have the overwhelming number of Jews rejected the gospel? Does it mean that the gospel has failed? Does it mean that all these things that Paul said about the gospel in chapters one through eight, they're actually not true now? No, Paul says the issue is not that the gospel has failed. The issue is we've misunderstood who Israel is. Paul says, not all who are ethnic Jews are true Israelites. Verse six, for not all who descended from Israel belong to Israel. In other words, being part of the true Israel is not about one's ethnic descent. Paul said something else uh, earlier in the second chapter of Romans. He wrote, for no one is a Jew who's merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. See, the promises made in the Old Testament, promise of a land, promise of an inheritance, of a future, a promise that God will be God to these people and these people will belong to God. These promises, and the promise, of course, of a Messiah. They're not promises made strictly to ethnic Israel, but what Paul calls the true Israel Verse 8, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. Now, there are all kinds of implications of this, of course, as it relates to the end times, uh, the future, the future of geopolitical Israel. uh, What should we make, if anything, of the events that are happening in Israel right now? And that actually is going to become more in focus in Romans chapter 11. So we'll get to that. But specific to our passage this morning, Paul says that the promises of God are not to everyone, and not even everyone of a certain race, but to the one he has chosen. Now, in order, in order to make this point, Paul gives two Old Testament examples in verses 7 through 12. God promised Abraham that his descendants, his people, would be blessed. But Abraham had two sons, Isaac and Ishmael, and only one inherited the promised blessing. It was through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned, Paul says in verse 11. Abraham had two sons, but God only chose one to receive the covenant promises. Now, someone might say, well, of course God chose Isaac and not Ishmael because Ishmael was conceived in sin and Ishmael was conceived by Abraham's own doubt and disobedience. And so, well, Paul anticipates that objection. And then he goes a step further and cites another example, an even more compelling example. In this case, there were two children from the same mother and from the same father. Indeed, they were actually twins. They were twins. They came from Isaac and Rebekah. Uh, they were Isaac and Rebekah's sons, Jacob and Esau. And God says in verse 11, though they had not yet been born or done anything good or bad, God chose one and not the other. 
Why? Very specifically, verse 11b, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. What is God's purpose of election? Well, it is God's eternal plan to save those he chooses. In fact, the word purpose, the Greek word prophesis, refers to a plan, a goal that has actually uh, a specific uh, pathway to achievement. So God has a goal of saving the elect and works out everything that happens in order to accomplish that goal. So that's what God's purpose of election is. But notice that, that Paul says, in order that the purpose of election might continue. He doesn't say in order to establish God's purpose of election. He says in order that it might continue. Here's the significance. God's purpose of election is a plan that God has always had. It's nothing new. Now here's why it's undeniable. This is our second point. God's goal has always been to save the ones he chooses for his own glory. And every story in Scripture points to God's freedom to choose and faithfulness to that goal. So this is, this is a purpose of election that is continuing. It's not starting now. It's not brand new. It's nothing new. It's not an alternate plan. This is what God has always determined to save his elect, and he's always working out everything that happens in order to accomplish that plan. And, and every story in the Bible reveals to us a, God's freedom to choose, and B, his faithfulness to that end. See, when God, think about Noah. Go back to Noah in Genesis 6. It, when God chose Noah, you know it wasn't because Noah was so great. Noah was actually a sinful uh, person just like everybody else. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord, we're, we're told, which just means that God, by his grace, determined to save Noah. Noah was a dark-hearted sinner who deserved to be caught up in the flood. He deserved to die just like everyone else, but God chose Noah, that is to say, God set his sights on Noah to save him, both immediately and then, of course, also ultimately, spiritually. When God chose Abraham, you know, we sing the song, Father Abraham, right, had many sons and so on. Abraham wasn't a worshiper of God, Abraham was an idol worshiper. Abraham was a maker of idols. And God got a hold of him. God chose him and brought him to him by his sovereign grace. Old Testament scholar Gordon Wenham writes, there's no disguising the failures of the chosen line. Noah stumbles. Abraham goes astray more than once. Isaac and Rebekah are partisan. Jacob is at times positively obnoxious, and the author of Genesis does not disguise his disapproval of such conduct. Yet, despite all their sinfulness, God's chosen are preserved and blessed. God's saving purpose is not thwarted by human weakness. There's an incredible scene in John's gospel, and I preached through John a couple years ago, and I remember as I was preparing, I was just blown away by this. Uh, Jesus is preparing to die. And the cross is before him, and he is in great agony. And he knows what's in store for him. And he, in John 17, he has this, what's often called the high priestly prayer. He prays out to the Father, and he just cries out to God, you know, in anguish, really. And he cries out, 
because he's about ready to go to the cross where he will be brutally killed for sinners, where Jesus will take on the guilt and sin of everyone who believes so that you and I, when we we trust in Jesus, we believe that he was real and he, he lived a perfect life and he died a death on the cross for us, for our sin, so that we could be forever forgiven. And as he prepares for that horrific moment, he prays to the Father, and here's what he says. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, he says. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world, and you love them even as you love me. Who are the ones that the Father gave to the Son before the foundation of the world? These are the elect, the ones that God has chosen. And to illustrate God's freedom to choose, Paul goes on to say in verse 13, verse 13 says this incredible thing, says, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now, we have to talk about that for a second, don't we? Because that's, I mean, that's really hard to accept on the surface before Jacob and Esau were even born. God loved Jacob and hated Esau. I mean, that sounds awful, at least on the surface. And I think the best way to understand this is to look at Jesus' own words in Luke 14. Jesus is talking about the cost of following him, what it means to be a true disciple. And he says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, does Jesus want us to hate our parents? Of course he doesn't. In fact, Jesus is the one who criticized, who offered a scathing rebuke to those of his, you know, the religious leaders of his day who were not taking care of their parents. And they're trying to be all spiritual about it. No, Jesus does not want us to hate our parents. Does Jesus want us to hate our children? Of course he doesn't. In fact, Jesus is the one who says, when the disciples are saying, look, keep the kids away from the Messiah. Jesus says, no, welcome them to me. For such are the kingdom of heaven. Jesus, yes, he wants us to love our children and to love our children well. So what in the world is he saying here? Well, when Jesus uses the word hate, he's talking about choosing as priority, choosing as priority one over another. He's saying, unless we choose him as priority over our parents, we're not worthy of following him. Unless we choose as priority Jesus over our own children, we're not worthy of following him. We can't say we love Jesus, but actually make our children the what's greatest to us and what we love and treasure the most. Well, Paul means the same thing in Romans 9 when he talks about Jacob and Esau. He's not saying that God just couldn't stand Esau before he was born. No, he's saying God chose Jacob over Esau before he was born as the one he would call to himself, as the one he would save, as the one to receive God's covenant promises. Now, some people argue and I've heard this recently, that because Jacob and Esau would eventually become two different nations, what Paul means by election is that God chooses not individuals, but, but groups of people. You know, they would say corporate identities, so to speak. Well, that's problematic on a whole bunch of levels. But one reason it falls apart is, remember, Paul's answering the question why some Israelite individuals receive Christ and other 
Israelite individuals don't receive Christ. The answer is God's election of some individual Israelites to salvation. And notice Paul says in 11, they were elected though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad. There are some really wonderful Christian people that I love that struggle so much with the doctrine of election that they'll do anything to refute it. And please hear what I said. Wonderful Christian people, they will not accept the doctrine of election. And the most common, quote, alternative to the biblical doctrine was actually espoused by a man named Jacob Arminius in the late 16th century. And Arminius would say, yeah, oh, of course, yeah, I believe in election. God elects people to be saved. But God looks down the corridors of time and he sees who would receive him, who would actually believe in him, and those are the people that God chooses. Well, of course, even logically that makes no sense because that's not God choosing anybody. That's God actually affirming someone else's choice. But even so, apart from logic, it makes no, makes no sense biblically. Paul makes it clear in verse 11 by using both a positive and a negative declaration that the choosing has nothing to do with the objects who were chosen. Nothing. It's not any foreseen faith. It's not any foreseen goodness or anything like that. It is completely based on God's sovereign will. That's what it's based on. Now, one other thing that's necessary to point out here, in describing the result of God's sovereign choice, Paul quotes Genesis 25 and says, Rebecca was told that the older will serve the younger. Now, it would have been totally understandable if Paul said the younger will serve the older because that's the way it always worked in the ancient Near East. But again, God does what no one would expect. He chooses the younger over the older. And this is just reinforcement of what I said a few minutes ago. The ones we expect to be saved, who ought to be saved, at least from a human standpoint, are seldom the one that God saved. For reasons known only to himself, and there are reasons, it's not arbitrary, there are reasons God just doesn't tell us. In order to accomplish his wise and perfect will, God chooses some to be saved and not others. Why? I have no idea. I have no idea. Only a fool would try to say, this is why God has chosen one person and not another. Only the Lord knows. Why God chooses whom he chooses, God never says, and that has to be okay. And I would say more than that, if you're in Christ, it's more than just okay. It's the reason for worship and praise and comfort. As Pastor Adam pointed out a couple of weeks ago, the doctrine of election is not only in the Bible, but it's there for our comfort, to compel us to worship, to strengthen our faith. It's not there to argue or debate. The apostles love the doctrine of election because for them, it meant safety. Since God had chosen them before he even created the world, when, they, when the persecution would mount and when the threats of death were everywhere, they knew for sure that God would never lose them. When they wrote about God's elective, think about this, and this is so, this is so important. When, they, when the apostles wrote about God's electing purposes, it wasn't with clenched teeth or embarrassment. It was with a smile because to them it was their joy. This is why we talk about it. 
Someone say, well, why even bring this up? We know it's divisive. We know good people disagree and people debate. Why even bring it up? Well, it's in the Bible for a reason. The doctrine of election enables us to see how the whole story of the Bible fits together, which, if I can be so frank, you can't really understand it if you... You can't understand how the Bible fits together if you don't embrace election. The doctrine of election ensures us that God gets all the glory and we get none. The doctrine of election keeps us from looking down at our neighbor who doesn't believe. And by the way, this has actually been a cornerstone doctrine of Baptists. Yes, Baptists. All the founders of the Southern Baptist Convention were staunch defenders of the doctrine of election, many even calling out in writing those who refused to teach the doctrine. Like, for example, one of the very first presidents of the Southern Baptist Convention, the fourth president, 1863, his name was Patrick Hughes Mell, and Mell was so devoted to it because of the humility that it produced. Here's what he writes. When we feel that we shape our own destiny that our own power or wisdom has procured for us advantages or successes, we're tempted to entertain exalted conceptions of our own importance. But when we believe that God rules above and rules below and works all things after the counsels of his own will, that he not only called us into being, but selected us according to his sovereign pleasure for the manifestation of his own glory, we feel that in the presence of God, we are nothing and less than nothing and vanity. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that God doesn't care about us. The fact that he chose us demonstrates how much he loves us. It doesn't mean that, that people who are outside of Christ are worthless. No, we've already seen from the book of Romans, the early chapters, how every person is created in image, the image of God at conception and bears the image of God and is therefore of great worth. But what election does, according to this former SBC president, is it humbles us and it gives us confidence in God. It doesn't take away our responsibility to have faith, but it shows us that even our faith is something that God gives us. It doesn't reduce our view of God, it actually enlarges it, and it's our great comfort. Here's why it's, it's such a great comfort. It's our final point. The doctrine of election is a great comfort because it lifts the burden of anxiety we carry to complete our own salvation or bring anyone else to salvation. We've talked about several times in this series, series the issue of assurance is a huge deal right now. And that's because we, we, we see people all around us, people we know and love, people in the, in the headlines, people in the spotlight, uh, again, pastors and uh, worship leaders and teachers and you know, so-called theologians who are abandoning the faith and they're, they're totally renouncing the faith they say, I'm no longer a Christian. Joshua Harris, who preached in front of thousands every week in Maryland, uh, had a cult following, you might say, with the books that he wrote. He says, look, I'm not a Christian anymore. That does not describe me. We hear about these things, and of course, we're grieved by it. But the doctrine of election says that because you were loved by God before you were even born, because you were chosen by God unto salvation before God made the world, your salvation is secure. He will never let you go. That's so reassuring in times when we see friends fall away or when we ourselves fall into the same sin over and over again. God's election will stand firm. He will keep those who belong to him. This is why the early church loved the doctrine of election. And aside from the death and resurrection of Jesus, talk more about election than any other doctrine. 
That's why we need to talk about it, for our assurance and for God's glory. Now, I mentioned to you at the top how controversial this is and how many people don't want to accept it. And I have to say to you, I understand where people come from on this. I understand why it's a difficult doctrine. But we don't have the prerogative when it comes to God's word to accept the things we like and reject the things we don't. When God speaks, we don't evaluate or critique, we listen. And the good thing is what God says to us, he says for our good. Some people I've heard won't accept the doctrine of election because they say, well, my mom or dad would be upset. My mom or dad would be angry. But is that not prioritizing mom or dad? which we've already looked at. My own mother, when she first came to faith in Christ, I've never known anybody who ever talked so much about Jesus. We go to the store, I'm 12, 13 years old, and talk about embarrassed. Anybody she can find, she's telling about Jesus. If she hears someone take the Lord's name in vain, she goes over and gently corrects that person. Man, woman, it didn't matter. She said, when someone first told me about the doctrine of election, I was livid. I was furious. She said, I actually wanted to disown my own friend who brought this to my attention until she read Romans 9 and now she loves the doctrine of election. It's her favorite doctrine. I know it's very difficult to accept and none of us here would ever dare try to explain why God chooses some and not others. But it's in the Bible and the objections that may come to our mind immediately are actually the ones that Paul will address in the last part of this chapter, which we'll talk about next week. But the good news is, if you've turned from your sins and trusted in Jesus, then you can know for sure that it's because God chose you before he made the world to be his own son or daughter. And because he chose you and because he brought you to saving faith, he will never, ever let you go. Since that's the case, nothing will ever separate you from God's love, not even your own sin. If you've trusted in Jesus, your sins are forgiven. They were dealt with once for all on the cross. So this morning, you are forgiven. And if you're here this morning and you're new with us or you're new to the Bible or even the Christian faith, here's the thing. You don't have to worry about whether God chose you or didn't choose you. All, all God calls you to do is repent and believe. Repent and believe the gospel. Turn from your sin. Turn from your own selfishness, your own ways, your own independence, your own self-reliance, and run to the cross of Jesus. And the scriptures make it very clear in this very next chapter, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You call on the name of the Lord, you will be saved. And then after you're saved, you look back and you say, thank you, God, for choosing me to be one of your very own. Let's pray.